So we'll do questions today. I have quite a stack from the board, but we'll alternate. Starting with one from the board. This one came last time, I think. This was a, this was a left from last time. I didn't get to this one. Tejaniya puts all emphasis on mind, as you have talked about, and in his book, he even omits karuna and mudita from vocabulary in the back. Karuna and mudita are the Pali for uh, compassion and uh, joy. Some teachers emphasize the importance of the body in practice, breath, etc. Some even talk about mindfulness as heartfulness. Body breath is in the suttas, perhaps heart as well. It seems teachers have differing interpretations. Can you speak of roles of body and especially heart? <coughs> the first thing I'll say, just um, the book uh, that he, that the one that we're using this time is the first book that Tejaniya wrote. And um, it was mostly put together by two um, Western, well, a Westerner and his translator, and um, um, the uh, second book that he wrote has a much more extensive glossary in the back and includes Karuna and Mudita, along with a lot of other uh, Pali words. So that's just one piece. Um, um, and um, also just to say. Um, um, uh, that Tejaniya's emphasis on mind, so I think the piece about the emphasis on mind is um, because of the understanding that the mind is where the suffering is. Suffering doesn't exist in body per se. It exists in relationship of mind to body. Um, and so that's, that's the emphasis or the reason for the emphasis on mind. And yet the teaching includes all four foundations. It's not that we ignore body experience, but we recognize it is as object. The four foundations are understood to be objects of practice in a way. And... Um, uh, the, the interest in this particular practice is to explore, oh, a body sensation has arisen. What's the relationship to that? Is it greed? Is it confusion? Is it a uh, balanced mind? And the understanding basically is that what, whenever the mind is balanced, when the mind is balanced, when the mind does not have defilement, when the, there's a wise attitude in the mind, Whatever objects are present, body, feeling, breath, are available for Dharma understanding to arise. And so the reason I think for Sayadaw's emphasis on mind is, is that, that once the attitude of mind is clear, then it doesn't particularly matter what the object is. It can be body, it can be mind. Then I think the, um, 
the question about heart is a really a good one. And I think I've um, said, I don't know if it's just been in the evening, so some of you might have missed this. I don't remember when I mentioned it, but that the term used for mind in the suttas basically means heart-mind. It's both. And so there's not a distinction so much made between heart and mind in the suttas. That's more of a Western, I think, perhaps a Western uh, distinction between heart and mind. That perhaps is why some other Western teachers use heartfulness. It's kind of using the alternative perspective on the word that's often translated as mind, that, that it does include heart. And so for some people, that perspective of heart can open up different avenues of understanding, different avenues of relationship to experience. So it can be very helpful. And definitely teachers have different perspectives or ways in to the practice that... Um, um, my sense is that people teach what has worked for them. And there's, this is what's so great about the Buddha's teachings. It was so um, broad. He really, I feel, offered so many avenues into the, uh, the practice and the understanding that we can find our own doorway in to the teachings. I sometimes say to people, start where it's the most natural, the most easy, the most resonant. Whatever practice you connect to that feels most resonant, that's where to really cultivate and grow. Because the Dharma, the Dharma is just like this big uh, hologram. Every piece of it can be reflected in every other piece. So starting from anywhere, the understanding can broaden and open to, uh, open to uh, the deepest wisdom. One teacher of Joseph's is um, famous for saying, sit and know that you're sitting and the entirety of the Dharma will reveal itself to you. That the instruction can be just collapsed down to just that very simple thing. Breathe and know that you're breathing and the entirety of the Dharma will be revealed to you. So there's so many different ways in. The perspective that I'm offering is a perspective that worked for Tejaniya and I found extremely helpful in my own practice and so that's why I'm offering it here. I don't feel that it's the best way or the right way or the only way. It is a way. A way that uh, works for some and perhaps not for others. There are many, many, many approaches. A question from the room. 
thinking about decision making, if you know feelings come and go and thoughts come and go, you have some maybe some confusion around like what you know filter to your thoughts when you're making decisions or when you're thinking about what to do, you know what if you sort of see all the aspects of self as those unreliable and arising and passing away, then you know how to look to what basis do we make decisions on? Um, um, it's kind of similar to another question, so I'll read that too. Uh, how does nothing to do or undo play in daily life? And you talk about how meeting things as they are in form, shapes, relates to wise action. Kind of in the same terrain. Um, hmm. um, so first I think I'll say that um, not to hold the idea of not-self as a concept, as an idea, something like, oh, if there's no self, there's no one to make decisions, so... I don't do anything. Um, I think that's a misunderstanding of the teaching on not-self. It's, it's kind of putting it as a, in a way it's creating a concept of not-self and trying to relate to experience through that idea. So the question becomes more, uh, back to trust in a way that as we begin to uh, recognize it's all just a process. Everything, thoughts are a process, a natural process arising in the mind. Hunger arises in, in, in the body and the organism has ways of taking care of itself. It creates um, the thought that I'm hungry, which creates the intention to move, perhaps creates plans around uh, creating a meal. Our system uses thoughts to navigate the world. And so to have the idea or think that um, uh, somehow we won't have thoughts or plans in the understanding of not-self The um, um, watching, as we watch the processes unfold, we recognize just it's conditioned, conditioned arisings. And we begin to understand when greed, aversion, delusion enter into the mix and shape decisions and actions, maybe leading to some not-so-good outcomes. <laughs> and then when wisdom and love and compassion enter the mix and shape some more wholesome outcomes. So we begin to trust in the uh, recognition of when the mind is in a place of wisdom, that wisdom will make skillf more skillful choices. Not me making skillful choices. 
not 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 me doing that but wisdom chooses compassion chooses acts so the um you know the planning the um the planning can be motivated by wisdom or by greed the the um decisions about uh actions can be motivated by wisdom or by greed and we begin to understand and where we begin to trust is when there's more wisdom present in the mind we trust those decisions more there's the, the kind of we begin to understand what it feels like for wisdom to be in the mind or more wisdom than uh defilement to be in the in the mind because we'll have a mix I think we'll have a mix for pretty much a long time. <laughs> so we begin to get a sense of that mix and also perhaps begin to get a sense of, oh, I can recognize there's greed in the mind and there's generosity in the mind. Might, might the action be, uh, might I recognize that there's greed in the mind even as I go ahead and act and try to connect a little more fully to the um, the motivation of generosity or compassion. And then as we... Um, also, I think there's this confusion around um, not-self, the teaching on not-self because so much of the time it does feel like there's a sense of self here. And when it feels like there's a sense of self here, even if it's in this vague way, this confused way, where it's not like really clear, like the two-year-old, it's a truck, but you know, just kind of this, no, yeah, just, you know, I know it feels like there's an Andrea, but I, I can't pinpoint it. Um, we might feel like, well, if there's a sense of self, then I shouldn't make decisions or something, something like that, because we've been told it's, it's, uh, you know, not, not a good place to move from or act from or something like that. We get, again, an idea of um, not self that is applied to our state, thinking somehow that it would be better to not be where we are. But here we are, we're in this place, we are in this place feeling this sense of self. And this is where the Buddhist teachings on wise view, on ethical conduct, support our actions. So that sense of self can pick up teachings, can um, borrow the wisdom and choose to act as best as it can from those understandings. And that heads, heads the system, heads the organism kind of in the direction of wisdom. So if it feels like there's a sense of self, make as skillful a choice as you can. Good enough. <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> okay, let's see. I'll read two now that um, I think are, at least in my mind, there's a connection between them. 
Um, this morning's sit was characterized by clarity and absence of thought. Sometimes the stillness would feel on the dry, flat side. I experienced waking up from thought where the mind was relaxed and there was a greater feeling of richness and depth carried over from the thinking phase. Comments? And the second question. Some mornings I wake up and the mind feels more concentrated than the day before. Can the mind actually get more concentrated while sleeping? Or is this the mind state I have woken up into? So both of these, I think, speak to the possibility that when the mind is not present, when the mindfulness is gone, when we're asleep, when the mind is wandering, that it can um, wander into something wholesome. You can wander into a little bit of letting go, which is why sometimes when we come back from a wandering that the mind feels more settled, more present than it did before the wandering. Any of you notice this? Is this something that... Uh, and likewise with sleeping too. It's also possible, and I know you've all seen this, that when the mind wanders or we're asleep, we wake up more agitated than before. You know, the mind wanders into defilement. It wanders into uh, anger and thinking about the past or it dreams about anxiety, and we wake up with that. So the, uh, the, um, the mind can do either when mindfulness is not present. It tends to do what is more habitual or more established. As the Buddha says, whatever one frequently ponders becomes the inclination of the mind. Whether we're mindful or not, it becomes the inclination of the mind. And on retreat, as we're cultivating the wholesome, cultivating the wholesome, actively cultivating the wholesome so much, there are times when the mind wanders and it gravitates towards the wholesome. Sometimes I've even seen that in the wandering, when the mind wanders in thought, sometimes it's almost as if, maybe I can say it is, it is, that the way the mind has been working while trying to be mindful has been caught up and tight and struggling. So trying to be present for some sense of um, pain or trying to be there for um, experience of anger, you know, like, oh, I really got to look at this. I've got to be there with it. And, and sometimes there can be a little bit of struggle in that. And sometimes the mind, wisdom, wisdom will arise and say, not the right approach. And wisdom will help us to let go of that and the mind will wander. Sometimes it feels to me like the wandering mind is wisdom trying to help us learn how to let go of something we've been stuck to. So that can happen. That can happen in our sitting and in waking up from sleep, that kind of thing. The, uh, the first part of 
um, the question. The, this morning's sit was characterized by clarity and absence of thought. Sometimes stillness would feel flat on the dry side. Um, my sense is with that experience that um, perhaps there was an attitude that was unseen. So there was clarity and absence of thought. There was the dryness. Could simply be, oh, this is this experience. There's this feeling of dry or flat or perhaps neutral. Neutral experience. Kind of coming into not a lot of highs or lows, but just really neutral. I don't know what was happening in the uh, question this person asked, but sometimes it can feel dry or flat as the as the reactivity diminishes and things are much more experienced as neutral. And so in 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 recognizing, oh, okay, stillness and clarity and flatness is happening. What is flatness? What is the experience the mind is identifying as flat? What is that? The name, the words, the identifications, flat and dry, to me have a a little bit of an attitude to them. Something like, flat and dry aren't supposed to be what's happening when the mind is clear. Or, flat and dry must be doing something wrong. It's supposed to be more interesting. Something along those lines. And so, the, it sounds to me like there might have been a couple things happening. One, not really clearly recognizing what is this experience of flat? What is the mind identifying as flat? There's stillness and clarity and flat? Flat is a concept. What is the mind identifying as that? And then what's the relationship to that? Something's wrong, not doing it right, something like that. So it sounds like there was something that might have been not quite seen there. In the moment of waking up after wandering, if the mind has wandered into wisdom, if the mind has wandered into uh, wholesomeness, the the mind can wander into right attitude. And so when we wake up into right attitude, there's that kind of sense of no problem with whatever is arising. There's any ever a sense of something's off or something's a problem. Check the relationship. Check the attitude. There's probably something hidden back there. Another question from the room. Uh-huh. So that was a, that was a practice you played with together? Yes. Uh-huh.
what awareness is present in more of an everyday conversation, everyday place that you expect in, in a less structured environment? Um, so a, a question about the... Uh, the kind of awareness that might be able to meet uh, an everyday conversation as opposed to a, a slowed down practice of speech, uh, which we can do here. Um, so in daily life, we take what's offered. We accept what's offered, including the awareness that's available for us. The more we cultivate and recognize, oh, this is, the, this is the awareness that's available and this is what's knowable in that awareness. And so it may just simply be in the, in the fast pace of conversation. I know I'm talking while I'm talking. Maybe. Maybe it's more even a kind of an awareness that comes in and out, pops in and out. That's what's available. But the recognition of it as it's popping in and out, the, the kind of... Um, commitment to keep trying will begin to increase the continuity of mindfulness over time, will increase the, the availability for mindfulness over time. And um, the more steady the mindfulness is, the more that can be seen or known. So um, as, as you're noticing, you know, talking is a hard area for mindfulness. We very quickly tend to get lost. So slowing it down, practicing is really useful. Um, you could even try uh, with Dharma friends, you know, having a mindful lunch like I described this morning with my, my friend, um, that uh, you agree we're going to try to practice mindful speech, but maybe in that lunch you could say, well, let's just do the best we can. Let's see what is available to be known with the awareness that's here, and let's see if we can can watch, um, you know, what is it that's sticky? You know, where do we get lost? So just play with it, play with it. Um, I have a confidence, I think on occasion I've seen this, um, that when the, mindful, when the mindfulness is more continuous and all we can do is our best in daily life, I generally, and I'll, I'll, I'll probably restate this tomorrow afternoon, but I generally suggest in daily life that a good practice is to just recognize the moments when mindfulness returns and not try so hard to do the mindfulness because what I've seen in my own life and in talking to others is that when we try to pick up the doing of mindfulness as a project in the midst of daily life, it quickly goes out the window. It's just like, it's just another job to do amidst the many other things we have. But if we can just be more interested in those moments when mindfulness is there and kind of be interested in, oh, how long does this one last? Oh, 30 seconds, okay, and then it's gone. Um, but just get interested in that and practice with that, highlighting for ourselves, oh, this is a moment of mindfulness. The mindfulness tends to begin to um, gain in momentum in daily life as well. And as that happens, as there is more of a momentum in daily life, there's much more availability for seeing the wide variety of things that happen in conversation. 
but it's not something we can force or do. It's much more that the awareness that has its own momentum will be available to see those things. Um, and so what we work on is the, the cultivating of that momentum in all aspects of our life, not in just conversation. And over time, we see the fruit of that. Yeah. Can you talk about the difference between causes and conditions? You mentioned that there are so many conditions, past and present, that come to be in a single moment. It's almost impossible to say these conditions cause X. So I might be missing the importance of using both. So um, the causes, in, uh, the way I think of it is a lot about conditions. Actually, Gil has been pointing out lately that the Buddha actually didn't use the word cause very much. Um, in his teaching. He actually talked much more about the conditions, conditions leading to the arising, conditions being present. The arising of this is the arising of that. So it's like the, the, the conditioned arising of these things together, but not necessarily talking about X causes Y. Um, more conventionally, the way I use the word causes, cause versus condition um, just in my own thinking about it, my own kind of distinct distinction, um, is that there's all kinds of conditions that have happened to us, all you know, manner of things in the past. Um, uh, you know, our genetics, our uh, history, the way um, the way we interacted with people in our past, all of that is conditions that have shaped who we are to this point. And so, you know, that, that uh, those conditions have really been a shaping factor for this moment as it's arising. And then um, in the arising of this moment, what's happening in this moment, in particular in the realm of suffering, in particular in the realm of uh, dukkha, When there is dukkha arising, there is some clinging or craving happening right now. There are all kinds of conditions that came into this moment that created the situation to which we are reacting. But the reaction, the craving, the clinging about that situation is happening right now. And to me, this is where I talk about cause. It's like there's, there's all the conditions that have led to the situation, but the cause of the dukkha in this moment is the arising of craving in this moment. And I will say again, as Gil is pointing out, the Buddha doesn't actually use the word cause there. He uses that, the w that when, when craving arises, this is the way the Buddha says it. When craving arises, suffering arises. That's the statement of the second noble truth. It, it has a flavor of causality. Is it when craving doesn't arise, suffering doesn't arise. 
So there's the sense of cause, cause, that the craving causes suffering. But causality is often a time thing, right? Something happens, and then the next moment something else happens. And the Buddha there is speaking about, as there's arriving of craving in the moment, suffering is arising simultaneously. And so it's this conditioned arising. But that's how I'm using cause, that in the moment, particularly around suffering, there's something happening in the moment that's creating the experience of suffering. It's not, um, it's not all of the stuff from the past. I mean, like, you know, so if you're suffering around something that happened in the past, if you're suffering around thinking about um, what somebody did to you 10 days ago, and that that uh, that feeling, the the anger and the confusion and the resentment and the sadness and the bitterness, all of that's coming up in this moment. Sometimes we can feel or think that it's the same sadness that was created 10 days ago. But what's happening is that right now, there's a thought arising in the moment about that situation. And what's happening is that right now, the mind's reacting all over again, creating new bitterness and sadness and anger and frustration, all right here in this moment. The arising of that thought and the reaction to that thought are creating the suffering right here. So the arising of the craving leading to the arising of the suffering in the moment. If those thoughts arise and the mind is in a state of wise view, the thought arises and passes. And all of that response doesn't happen. And many of you have described this kind of thing. So this is what, uh, what I mean in terms of causes and conditions. That, that the, just conventionally speaking, conditions often we think of as meaning all the vast network of things that have put us into the present moment. And the, uh, to me, the causing is what's happening right now. All the information we need to understand our suffering and to release that suffering is available in the present moment. We don't have to go digging. We don't have to go looking. We don't have to understand all the pieces that came together in my history to create this experience of arising self-hatred right now. All we need to understand is that self-hatred's arising right now and what's the craving, what's the clinging happening right now? The freedom will come from that. And so that's, again, talking around something, talking around the the questions of causes and conditions. A couple questions from the room. Yeah. This is one of those thoughts that arose in that day. <laughs> we can definitely practice. Yeah. 
t being aware while talking, you know, it's like. <laughs> Great. I like it. <laughs> yeah, we can we can do that. We can practice um to ourselves, you know. It's a, and and two, I think we can also do this with thinking. It's like we can practice thinking and being mindful while thinking. It's like, okay. Think the thought my name is X and, you know, can you be aware while you think that? Not so hard, actually. So you can actually practice that. The harder part, though, is is um, uh, practicing with the kind of uh, arising of thought and the expression of that. You know, that's kind of arising from not the conscious, I'm going to decide to think this or I'm going to decide to say that. But at the same time, it's it's useful. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Another question. Um, I have a question about working um, with different practices. So this is my first introduction to using the open awareness practice, which of course I had um, some serious aversion to, but I've been playing with throughout the retreat and I've connected with it and find it useful. Normally, work with uh, focusing on the breath and just the different sensations that arise within my breath. Um, I've kind of been going back and forth, mm -hmm. um, and I'm kind of all over the place with it at this point, where I'm like, you know, I'm using one, and I'm using like kind of depending on the moment it feels right. And I guess if you have any comments or I have a lot of comments about this. And it's more comments that I have time for. I've actually already planned to do a discussion about this tomorrow. But what I'll say to you now is um, um, trust what feels useful to you. So if you find that, um, you know, just one quick thing might be um, you're paying attention to the breath and you find it's tight. Ah, oh, relax, settle back. Come to the more relaxed, just receiving for a while. And then see if you can bring that to the breath. Trusting your intuition about what, um, what feels appropriate, but also recognizing that sometimes intuition can be guided by delusion. Um, but but, but uh, trusting, what we trust actually is when um, our... So we play, we play, we experiment and s see what the results are. So if the way you've been going back and forth has supported you to be um, more present at times, that's a helpful exploration. And there may be times when it's more out of, um, you know, like thrashing that it feels like you're going back and forth and you see, well, that's actually not so helpful. Maybe I should just pick one. Just pick one and stay with it for a little while. Let the mind settle down. So, so looking how it, how it is in your own experience. That's what I'd ex ex encourage you to explore for the next day until I have the time to more fully answer this question. So this is the one I plan to start with tomorrow. And let's see. One more? Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on 
the second topic I'm going to talk about <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> well, one okay. Any thing you can do to help yourself, do it. This is a tool that I teach in my daily life practice retreats of, you know, picking some specific activity that you're doing and just committing yourself. That's going to be part of, that's like my cooking meditation or my eating meditation, just picking some activity and just exploring the possibility of having it be like a meditation, like a sitting meditation. You're just seeing how can I be, bring mindfulness into that. Um, and you'll forget and uh, you'll remember at times and you'll forget and just to, to keep, keep exploring that. And then after you've maybe gotten to the place where that um, feels like it's more available to you, pick another thing and, you know, kind of begin to slowly build the, the mindfulness through the day. Definitely that can be helpful. Yeah. Let's see. This one, I think. Well, I'll see if I can do a quick answer to this one. I have some confusion about what rapture is and what jhana is. Can you explain the difference? So in the technical definition of jhana, there are, uh, as, we, as we kind of settle into in jhana defined as the collected concentrated mind, um, samadhi, right? Samadhi is usually defined in the suttas as the jhanas. And again, as we talked about the other day, different interpretations of what jhana means, whether it means focus on one object or available and receptive and non-reactive, um, different views, different views on that. Um, but in the creation of that mind that is uh, collected, it's they said there's five factors that come together to create that state at the beginning. And those five factors are um, two aspects of basically the, the energy in the mind, directing the attention and sustaining the attention or uh, a connecting and sustaining to the present moment. Those are two. Uh, rapture is one of these factors. Uh, happiness is one of these factors. And um, unification of mind is one of these factors. And so the, the uh, experience of certain states of concentration, at times the different factors will be stronger than others. At different times we may have more of a sense of one of those factors than another. 
And then as the concentration deepens, the understanding is that some of the grosser factors, the like the energy of connect and sustain, connect and sustain, that begins to fall away. You don't have to do that so much. And as that happens, the experiences of rapture and happiness get a lot stronger because there's not so much activity going on in the mind. And so um, the, uh, the rapture, rapture is... Um, often felt as a very bodily, energetic experience. Sometimes feeling like um, you know, a lot of uh, waves of pleasure or um, sparking energy or sometimes it's unpleasant actually. It does sometimes get unpleasant, but the physicality of it sometimes gets unpleasant. Um, but it's often got some kind of an energetic component to it. And so it's one of the factors that's present, and it's a mental factor, a kind of rapture. The, the, the mental quality of rapture is real interest in what's happening. It's this rapt interest, kind of. That's one of the definitions of, of the rapture. And so there's that mental interest and delight that has this all of this physical stuff that happens with it. And so often people begin to equate all of the experiences of the bubbling delight or the, you know, just that, just the pleasure. It's just very pleasurable um, with concentration because it's kind of a, oh, one of the signs or symptoms, we could say a symptom of concentration. And so, um, but it's just one of the pieces. It's one of the pieces that comes together in the mind that is concentrated. Um, and sometimes that rapture, when I was practicing concentration practice with Tanisaro Bhikkhu, you know, I was experiencing certain things and I described certain things and, um, and, it, it, it didn't have that quality of the real, like, energetic experience. And he said, sometimes rapture is so subtle you don't even notice it. So it can, be, it can also be quiet. The, the experience of rapture can also be quiet. And then, as I said, these, these, the, the kind of grosser factors fall away, the deeper the concentration. And at some point in the deepening of concentration, the rapture also falls away. And we have, you know, happiness and this kind of balance of mind that's present. But it doesn't have that. It, it, it's like the, the rapture's got a kind of movement to it. Interest kind of has a little bit of movement to it. And as that falls away, it just more feels like this suffusing sense of pleasure, much more quiet, uh, very delightful, very delightful space. My own mind labeled it the, oh yes, <laughs> state. <laughs> Why would I not want to be here? <laughs> Just so very peaceful and very pleasant. And then even deeper state of concentration, that, that pleasure falls away. And it's just the 
peace. And so concentration has a range, the, the jhana has a range of experiences, some of which include rapture and some of which don't. Rapture is just one aspect or one piece, a symptom that a certain kind of concentration either may be in the terrain of forming, because rapture can arise without the kind of full collectedness of mind. So it, 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 when, when those states of delightful um, pleasure are happening, the mind may be kind of in the terrain of approaching concentration and approaching jhana, but not necessarily in jhana. So those are just a few, few thoughts about the differences between those. And I'll just make one last check in the room. Anything in the room? His eccentricities wouldn't be what he wanted to be remembered for, if, if I'm paraphrasing that. Um, I'd like to know if you have any sense about how accurate that is, um, what we do know about um, the Buddha himself. The Buddha is a man. But it, it, there's another interesting point. Many of the other religious teachings about um, people who were gods, said to be gods, are very human in their presentation. You know, Noah becoming drunk and this sort of thing. We don't have that um, with the Buddha. Well, I actually would disagree with that. Um, there's a book called The Life of the Buddha by somebody, Nyanamoli? Nyanamoli. Um, where he basically takes the, I mean, we, I think we don't have a sense of the life of the Buddha because we're getting little snapshots, you know, little pieces. And uh, Nanamoli basically takes the texts and arranges them chronologically. So you get much more of a flavor of the trajectory of the Buddha's life. And I, I felt like also a sense a little bit of his person in that. 
And then um, there are other teachings, other texts, which Nanamoli may not necessarily refer to. I, I loved that book. I highly recommend that book. Um, it, it really, to me, gave as close of a flavor of the Buddha as we get from the suttas. Um, but then there are also, um, I think part of the reason, I don't think it has anything to do with the Buddha. I think it partly has to do with memorizing the teachings and you know, creating something that's easy to remember that some of the um, more an, uh, anom anomalous? anomalous stuff would fall away because the the things that you're trying to you know remember that it kind of it creates these repetitive kind of things but there are some some texts that are um, apparently understood to be older and in the Sutta Nipata in particular um, uh, I I like uh, the Sutta Nipata to me it feels like you're right you're right walking around with the Buddha like he's wandering around by himself and running into people and having conversations and it feels very different from the Buddha that is sitting where there's 500 followers and he's giving a discourse so it's it's got a very different flavor to me and I, it to me that also gives me a little bit of a sense of the Buddha as a person and then also to me there are so a few texts that are saved, that are recorded, that actually give me kind of more confidence that this records uh, something that may have happened. Well, things like, um, uh, you know, the fact that the Buddha, um, uh, when his son was seven years old, you know, he, 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 he basically left his, his wife and his child to go off and to become a monastic. He had that calling. And in our culture, this sounds horrendous. But, you know, in that culture, his wife and child were well taken care of in the fat family. You know, so it was like, it wasn't like he was abandoning them to defend for themselves. So, but he was, he left. So he was an absent father. And when he went back when he was seven years old, and apparently, apparently his wife was a little ticked off. And um, and she uh, she said to her son Rahula, she said, "Go ask your father for his inheritance, and for your inheritance. Go ask your father for your inheritance. You know, here he is. He's abandoned everything. He has nothing to give him. But but so um, Rahula approaches his father and asks for his inheritance, and his father ordains him as a monk, as a seven-year-old." which is the youngest that he well, was permitted, they were permitted to ordain them. But um, his um, father and I think his mother were both furious at him for this. You know, they're like, this is not cool. You know, you just did that. And, um, and the Buddha like kind of acknowledged, he's like, you're right, you know. From now on, we have to have permission of both parents to ordain a child. So, you know, to me, there's the Buddha kind of acknowledging, yep, I messed up, okay, yeah. <laughs> so, and there's other things like that, too, that give me a little bit of a flavor. You have to read, and you have to kind of uh, spend some time with the suttas to get that flavor, I think. Um, 
but I, 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 um, so I don't necessarily agree with her, with her opinion on that completely. I feel like there are little hints in the suttas. There's a lot of it that has been stripped away. You know, I think not so much because the Buddha wanted it that way. That's a stretch to me to think that that, but just, I think, probably more because of the um, memorization and trying to consolidate the teachings. The interest was in remembering the teachings, not the man. So that's what the texts largely keep, is the teachings. So let's sit for a few minutes. <laughs> 